college of fashion. Room is on the top floor. It's perfect. I love it. If I could live any place in any time, I'd live here in London in the 60s. everybody welcome to the episode of fresh cuts this is mike and joining me as always it's mr venom what's up venom greetings and salutations hipsters i'm doing pretty good mike i just want to hurry up and get back to my far cry six yeah we know <laughs> all right <laughs> <laughs> all right well then i'll hurry this intro along joining us as always as well it's don what's up don how are you yeah, doing great. Uh, happy to be here as always. Maybe not for the movie, but uh, always glad to talk to you guys. <laughs> Whoa, okay. More on that in a bit. Uh, we are discussing the movie we said we were going to be discussing. It's um, our second of the week, and that is Last Night in Soho. So should be no surprise there. And then IMDb synopsis, an aspiring fashion designer is mysteriously able to enter the 1960s where she encounters a dazzling wannabe singer, but the glamour is not all it appears to be. And the dreams of the past start to crack and splinter into something darker. All right. Well, uh, let's go to general thoughts with Venom. What did you think of last night in Soho? I really, really like this movie. I, I really enjoyed almost every aspect of this film. Edgar Wright, in my opinion, does it again. I'm a big Edgar Wright fan to begin with. I love Shaun of the Dead, Baby Driver, Scott Pilgrim, stuff like that. I mean, all movies that I really, really enjoy. So 
I kind of expected to enjoy this one, and I did. Now, I'm not sure how well this movie works as a quote-unquote horror film. Once again, IMDb describes it as drama-slash-horror, um, just like the last week with Antlers. So in this case, though, the dramatic elements of it work a lot better for me. I, I think a lot of the characters here are very likable, Um you know, other than the people that are obviously supposed to not be liked, you know, like the bullies at the school and things like that. But for the most part, I mean, this thing, it's its shot beautifully. It's edited beautifully. It has one of the best scores of the year. And I don't say that lightly. I absolutely adore this score between the, you know, the, the kind of situational music, the unlicensed music that's used throughout the film on top of also a lot of the cool 60s music that's in it. I, I just really had a great time. This movie definitely, it's kind of a pun, but it kind of transports you back to the 60s, a lot like it's doing to our main protagonist, Eloise, in, in the film. But I, yeah, I had a really good time with this. Like I said, I don't know how well it works as a horror film. I think it works really well as a murder mystery with like a supernatural tinge to it, because I mean... This is a two-hour film where you go over an hour before anything remotely horror even happens. And, um, like, literally an hour into the film, I'm like, wow, th this is a great movie. It really is a cool kind of uh, time capsule of the 60s in uh, Soho, London. But, you know, I, I was just questioning what exactly makes it horror. But then once we get into the story and we get more details on what exactly Eloise is seeing in her little, you know, time travel slash flashbacks, um, it definitely, you know, pumps up the horror element of it. The third act is very frantic, you know. Um, and then when we get our actual reveal, I thought it was very um, fulfilling. It wasn't exactly where I thought the movie was going. I, I think I, along with the majority of viewers, thought the movie was going in a particular way. But then they throw that final swerve in there, which actually worked really well for me, making uh, making Anya Taylor-Joy's character somewhat sympathetic while also still having a very, very dark side. So yeah, for me, this movie works really well. I really, really enjoyed it. It's it's a two-hour film that did not feel two hours to me. I know there's going to be a lot of people who maybe, you know, aren't as big a fan of this film. Um, a lot of people are going to be going to have a hard time maybe putting this in a box as far as a genre box. Like I said, it very solidly goes to horror in the third act. But the first couple of acts, it's like you're you're just kind of watching a straightforward kind of time travel drama, if you will. But ultimately, great score, great cinematography, beautiful use of colored lighting throughout the film. We've got lots of reds, lots of blues to the point where I started to think that there were police officer car, like police cars in every single scene. But it's not. It's just the way that he's utilizing his colored lighting. So, again, Edgar Wright does a really good job. He wrote this film as well. So kudos for the storyline. Um I haven't said a whole lot of negative stuff about it, though I don't anticipate this being in my top 10 at the end of the year. Like I said, I did enjoy it. It's a beautiful film. But, you know, you know, our, our top 10 is always going to be our favorite horror of the year. And I'm not saying that this movie's not horror. I'm not trying to deny that. Other people might. Uh, but it just takes a long time getting there. And I know for some people that's going to be a little bit of an annoyance. Like I said, you go over an hour before anything remotely supernatural happens. So... Um, be prepared for that, but also be prepared for um, I, I myself am an older gentleman. I, I don't 
know the 60s. I was born in 1970. I didn't live through any part of it. But it's always been a curiosity of mine. I, I like the music. I like the styles. I like the fashion. I like even television and film from the 60s. So um, when a movie delves into it as deeply as this one does, uh, as far as the 1960s aesthetic, I do enjoy it. So, yeah, overall, I'm going to say this is a great film. Whether you look at it as horror or not might be the question for some genre fans. But ultimately... If you can get past, you know, this maybe not being the most horrific horror film of the year, I think you're going to get a lot out of it. At the very least, you're going to hear some really good songs in the score and and get to hear Anya Taylor-Joy sing uh, Downtown, which I had to look up. She That actually is her voice. She is singing that song in the movie. So I had no idea she could actually sing. So, uh, yeah, kudos to the cast. I had no issues with any of the performances. I, honestly, as far as filmmaking aspects though uh, go, be it editing or anything else, uh, pacing, I totally think this movie is uh, on a on a top shelf for me. Uh, like I said, this is going to be a very divisive film. Some people are going to love it. Some people are going to hate it. I think that kind of follows for Edgar Wright films, but I solidly say that I absolutely love this film. And despite me being pretty sure it will not be in my top 10 at the end of the year. It will definitely get an honorable mention as one of the high points in cinema in 2021. So that's it for general thoughts. All right, Don, uh, I'm guessing you might have something a little different to say, so go ahead. Yeah, I'm uh, so completely different. I'm not even going to expose any positives on this whatsoever outside of the technicality involved in making it. Uh, this did not work for me at all. I was bored. I was confused. Uh, I just grew tired of watching nothing happening for 50, 60 minutes or whatever the hell this thing starts in on. Uh, by the time we even get to the third act and the so-called horror starts, I had just completely zoned out. I was completely uninterested in anything. It, it's just so long before anything happens that I, I'm just zoned out on this uh you know it looks good it's well made uh, i'm not gonna decry the film any of those kinds of qualities but yeah it's just not a horror film uh, i'm not even putting it on my list and saying it is one uh, i i don't feel it is even the stuff that even when it even starts to become a horror film I, i'm not even really i don't even think those scenes are all that good um they're n nothing interesting there's nothing i haven't seen before Two or three scenes don't make a horror film for me. I need more than that. And I, I don't even think they're that well made, even as they are. So, yeah, uh, this didn't really work for me at all. Uh, I'm done, if you're interested. That was all I had to say. I know that was kind of like a weird thing to say, but yeah, I was I was done. Okay. Um, yeah, as far as I go, I, I liked it a lot. I think it kind of works better if going into it thinking of like a Twilight Zone episode, like a movie-length feature than straight horror movie. I think even I think even some of the horror stuff, you know, it, it's – I think everything's well done. I, I, I you know, initially I, I – How to get in – to um, the horror stuff and initially I was like yeah but it's pretty good what you get before them but like I started thinking about it more um, the past couple days and I think they're 
an easy cha- not change this far, but there's an easy thing that you could probably cut out that would have really taken down the running time, and we can get into that in spoilers. Um, but I don't know. I, I feel like this is a movie that I, I think it's a really good movie. It's just a matter of people going into it wanting like a horror movie. Is it going to satisfy that appetite? But as far as like, you know, Venom mentioned the aesthetic. I I think what's cool is like it's not just the 60s, but it's something we don't get a lot of because it's 60s London. It's I, I yeah. don't remember if we get it an exact year, but it feels like obviously like either. It's British invasion is going on over here in America where it's still very, you know, the nightlife yeah, of the um, 60s I, rock. Yeah, it's, say it's, it's still going be, on there. I was going to say that it's at least mid 60s, like 65, 66. Yeah, because it, it's not like, you know, the Beatles are playing in the clubs there. So there's a very good chance like the Beatles have already made it over here. But, you know, it still leaves behind like a vibrant nightlife of 60s uh, music from that era going on in Soho. And I thought it was cool because, you know, when we when we think about the 60s, obviously we think of it through a very American lens, you know, with uh, the American rock and roll, psychedelic rock. But to get a kind of a peek at what it looked like over there is cool because mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, progressive things and changes were happening there as well. We just don't get to see it a lot. And, you know, naturally Edgar Wright would be so, like a good candidate to kind of bring that to screen. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I thought all the sixties scenes were really good. Um, I, I think, you know, with the story and the way it plays out, you know, if you, start overthinking it you can probably poke holes or just have lots of questions about how exactly it's working and what's working there was a point in the movie where i was questioning okay is this going based on what the main character is doing and i don't mean ani taylor joy the other girl the one that was in old because she was like she was like the six the daughter at 16 i think it was in old um there was a point where i was like okay wait. is it going in this direction or this direction wait who are you talking about um, yeah, not on your channel. Enjoy the other one. Well, she had to the, be at least uh, eighteen. Other... She was going to school. The fashion designer. Yeah. No, I'm yeah, I'm asking was... Mike. You mean the fashion designer, right? Yeah, the one that Eloise. wanted to be the fashion designer. Okay. Eloise. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So uh, at least use that so that way I know because I was kind of confused who the hell you were talking about. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I just thought I thought maybe you guys knew she was an old as well, but. Wait, um, I mean, just, she was just by reference. She was in M. Night's Old. From oh, that. gotcha, gotcha. I missed that entire uh, reference. Oh, <laughs> okay. Oh, I, I'm trying okay. To, yeah, oh okay. yeah, I'm trying to forget that. Yeah, no. Complete. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, no, that, yeah, that makes more sense, because I was trying to figure out what the hell he's talking about by old, like. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Hey, oh, in, in the movie, in the movie, once they turn into, like, I, I, I'm guessing, like, 16-year-olds or she's the daughter once she becomes that age in the movie old um so i don't anyway, even sorry about that i don't even remember i i thought you were talking yeah. about the fashion designer it's like <laughs> the hell is he going on about <laughs> stop the only, other the only reason our... <laughs> well the only reason i really the only reason i knew is because after the movie, kind of curious because obviously anya teller joy easily recognizable to horror fans i thought I had seen the other girl somewhere, and oh, yeah. I was oh, like, let me like, look her up. Allison McKenzie? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So what else was I going to say? Yeah, and uh, I think the movie lands its ending because I was a little worried, like, how are they going to wrap this up? I was fine with the twist and how it worked. Uh, and there was a little bit after that first twist that I was like, wait a minute, is this – are they going to gray up this a little bit? No, they wind it back the, the way it probably should have been. Um, what else can I say? Awesome soundtrack, like Venom said along with the 60s stuff i thought you know the the stuff like in the nightclubs was awesome just you know the dance routines and you know there's a lot going on in this movie as far as uh technical production cinematography it's a really pretty movie to look at it's it's uh loud it's vibrant it's it's whimsical at times just uh based on like the story and and uh I guess for me personally, it doesn't. It, if you look at it as like a Twilight Zone, like I said, I I would say it does enough. But I can understand where by the time the credits are rolling, that you know horror fans specifically, okay, it was an okay movie, but not horror enough for me. Mm-hmm. Just for me personally, I'm I'm good with it because I think that's kind of like Edgar Wright's thing. Because like you know, like The World's End, I think was kind of like that too, where people thought it was going to be more just straight horror and there was a lot more going on in that Shaun of the dead obviously it it was a straight like uh, satire on romero so that was probably more straight up horror comedy but um i don't know i i i feel like it, this feels like an edgar wright movie like the type of stuff he puts out Maybe not as much comedy as I would normally expect in an edgar wright movie because even his horror films tend to be fairly um, funny. Uh, obviously, Shaun of the Dead is fucking hysterical. Yeah. Hot Fuzz, and, well, not that Hot Fuzz is really all that horror, but At World's End definitely is. You know, I, I, I Mike is saying that it's not very horror. I, I totally think it's horror. I mean, it's an alien invasion for fuck's sake. So, um, so yeah. But, but the point is, there was definitely a lot less comedy. There's still some whimsical moments, like Mike said, but like just straight you know, side-splitting moments, nothing like that in this film. Yeah, he's definitely not going for comedy here. Yeah, definitely. Because this is definitely not like him satirizing like a genre of anything. It's just him straight making a movie. Um, What else? I think that might be it. I mean, Anya Taylor-Joy continues to be impressive. Like, I haven't seen that, uh, what was it? Is it The Queen's Gambit, the chess show? Yeah, I watched an episode of it. It's just not for me. It's great. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's very well made, but it's not I, for me. I just, I, I just didn't watch it because I wasn't interested in like this subject material. But sure, but I, I, I've heard great things about her in it, and she's pretty much been good in everything she's in. So she, her career just mm-hmm. continues to climb. I mean, this is a great cast yeah. all around, honestly. I mean, we've we've got bit players in here like Diana Rigg and Taryn Stamp. I mean, these are people that were A-listers in the eighties. And now they're just kind of playing bit roles here, but they work. Terrence Stamp's role is stellar in this film as the silver haired gentleman. Ah, I, I thought he did a great fucking job. And obviously, you know, it, it, he's well, I, that's kind of spoilery. I'll save that for later on. But yeah, I, I thought his role was great. Diana Rigg getting to see, you know, a, a, an Avengers uh what do you call it? Alumni, not the MCU Avengers, the 60s TV show from England, the Avengers. Uh, Patrick, the Patrick, Me- Patrick McGowan, I believe, was the star. I might be confusing that with The Prisoner. I'm not as up on my 60s television as I should be, but yeah. 
Uh, either way, seeing Terrence Stamp, I mean, I, I let out in the theater, I accidentally yelled General Zod and I'm in, I'm watching the movie myself. Like I, you know, I, my wife's usually working nights, so I'm at the theater by myself. So yeah, I just yell out General Zod and I, I had at least four people look at me. So I had to shut up. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I'm wrapped up for general thoughts. It's hard to say much more without getting the spoilers. Mm-hmm. So, uh. I'll kick it back to you, Venom, for any final general thoughts, or we can get right into spoilers. I mean, you know, like I said, great cast, great editing, great score, great cinematography. The movie, you know, I know the movie's not going to speak to everyone. That That's obvious. But um, the movie checks a lot of boxes for me, even though this isn't straight horror by any stretch. Um I, I still am riveted by it. Like for, for that first hour, as a, you know, as opposed to Don, who was bored in that first hour, I was totally engaged. I thought Eloise was absolutely adorable. I was engaged in her story as far as, you know, going to the big city for the first time, going to school. Uh, once the, the kind of bullies, the female bullies, which I know it, it, it's kind of a common theme in, you know, a girl from the country going to school in the big city. Of course, she's going to catch some bullying. Uh, he doesn't overdo it, thankfully. Not like that first episode of the Chucky series <clears throat> that Don Mancini, you should be ashamed. Anyway, that's a discussion for another episode. But the <laughs> point is, yeah, I, I like the, even the, the the light bullying that we get in here. It's not like so atrocious or infuriating that it takes you out of the film. You know, it's just expected. She's the country girl. She makes her own clothes. So, of course, all these you know, rich bitches at the fashion school are going to make fun of her clothes that she makes herself and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I could have done with a little bit less of that, but ultimately it didn't take me out of the film. So I'll give it Edgar Wright some credit there. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what negative I can really say about this movie. I do have a couple of problems with some plot points, uh, which we'll get into here in the spoiler section, but for the most part, as far as anything that I can talk about, non-spoiler, I just about loved everything about it. Like I said, it's a very different movie. It's not going to speak to everyone, but for whatever it's worth, I loved just about every scene in this film. I was engaged. Like I said, I was questioning the horror element until the supernatural stuff started happening, but I was still engaged. Like I said, I was still into Eloise's story. I was in still into Sandy's story, Jack's story, like all the different stories that we're seeing, even, even the cool black dude who was, you know, kind of sweet on her early on, but was kind of getting ignored. I even found him somewhat likable, you know? Um, So yeah, uh, again, I, I can't say enough good things about Edgar Wright and this film. So what do you say? Let's get into some spoilers. Let's do it. All right. Well, We've already given the kind of basic uh, storyline of the of the movie. Uh, we'll get into a little bit more detail here. Basically, Eloise is a country girl, adorable little British girl, who's going to London for the first time by herself. She's going to fashion school. When she gets to school, she gets a roommate, like a, almost like a the fashion school provides like dorms. And she gets a roommate who's just an absolute bitch. Just, you know, within the span of like 10 minutes, they play like four pranks on her and it's just (laughs) annoying as shit. They end up leaving her at the club at one point. It's just like I said, the bullying stuff I can live without, but at least it wasn't overdone. So, Uh, so one thing, one thing mm -hmm. um, from like the very beginning before she gets to the school that we skipped over just because I only want to bring it or I only want to make a point about it is because that's where I 
immediately thought, okay, this is going to go one of two ways. So before she leaves for school, I think she, can't remember if it's the same scene where she's like dancing in her room or if it's like after that when she's packing to go. But she basically looks in her mirror and we see that we she, there's someone there that it turns out it's her mom. Mm-hmm. And and then, of course, she turns around or whatever and her, her mom is there. So we find out, OK, so she lives with her grandma because her mom passed away. Somehow we don't know at the time. And. Right when that happened, when it became apparent that her mom wasn't actually there, the two things I thought of were, okay, are mirrors going to play a factor in the movie, like some type of self-reflection, which we get that later, or actually all throughout the movie. And then two, either our main character is like legit mentally ill, whether it's brought on by trauma or something, or some type of clairvoyance. Because I was like, obviously, the viewer is meant to to know that she's seen Oh, yeah. visions of her mom so i think that's kind of what sets up because without that then like later on once she starts having these dreams and seeing like ghosts and stuff of the past it'd be like well how the hell is she even like what is giving her this ability to see this in the first place but i'm assuming they set it up that she's clairvoyant somehow Ooh, see i don't get that the, the I, like i wasn't even going to bring up the mom in the mirror because i don't think it actually has any play into the storyline other than the so fact you think it's she, just like a haunted it's a haunted house thing i think it's anybody who would have been in that room would have seen these visions i mean any young girl who's in kind of the same obviously if a 50 year old man moves in there i don't think he's going to see the visions that she sees but just the fact that she's a young um impressionable girl that's the big thing very impressionable she's she's going to be easy to manipulate uh, easy for spirits to manipulate if you will so i think that's a bigger factor than her seeing her mom in the mirror if anything i took that at face value as just mom watches over her and every now and again she catches a glimpse of her you know just just my take like i said uh, you know who knows who's right or wrong here but yeah I, I barely thought about the mom. Like, I know we see her at the beginning and then we see her again at the end. But uh, for whatever it's worth, clairvoyance wasn't something I was thinking about. But it's valid regardless. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I was just trying to justify how because it, it obviously if if it's just about the room being haunted, then, yeah, I could see, OK, anyone that stays in that room is going to get haunted by the ghost. But to me, I was just trying to more figure out, well, how is she actually getting the visions Mm-hmm. of the past Wait, that because was kinda, the eventual I, I, I wasn't i wasn't confused it wasn't like i was sitting there during the movie oh, no, going no, no, like no, no. i just can't make sense of it it's just <laughs> one of those things you think about afterwards you know yeah like i said i, I took all the mom visions as, at face value as just yeah mom is there watching over her girl you know make it since mom died while her daughter was so young it would make sense that her spirit wouldn't cross over and that she would kind of stick around to just kind of make sure that she's on the right path like when when she sees her mom at the end of the film, I honestly believe that's the last time she'll see her mom. Because at that point, her mom knows she's successful, she's adjusted, she's got friends, she's got uh, peers, uh, she's she's ready for adulthood. In other words, so like I said, that's just my take. You know, I, I'm sure there's five other different takes available for why she's seeing her mother in the mirror, but you know, whatever. Um, huh. So. Yeah, so like I said, after she goes to school, figures out that her roommate's an absolute cunt, uh, and that's a British word, so I can use it. Ha! Um, 
<laughs> so uh, she basically starts looking for a place of her own. She can't live with this woman anymore. It's just too annoying. It's distracting her from her work, her schoolwork, everything. So she looks for an apartment. She ends up finding an apartment building that rents out rooms. Uh, she meets uh, Mrs. Collins, I believe was the name of the woman who, yeah, Miss Collins. Uh, yeah, and that's Diana Rigg. That's the uh, mm -hmm. the lady from uh, the Avengers, from the old 60s TV show, The Avengers. Oh, by the way, she was also... She was the, a Bond girl too, right? Yes, she was a Bond girl, and she was well, also she was a Mrs. Bond wife. She was Mrs. Yeah. Mrs. Yeah. Bond, yeah. And she was also the Queen of Thorns on uh, the Game of Thrones series. Uh, basically, oh, yeah, that's right. Marjorie Tyrell's mother. <laughs> Uh, grandmother, grandmother. So yeah, she was the queen of. She's the one who kills. Um, what's his face? Joffrey, King Joffrey. She's the one who poisoned Joffrey. She admits it right before her death. Anyway, eight spoilers. I haven't watched that far yet. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, uh, and this is a. This is the other thing I brought up during general thoughts, where I mm -hmm. thought, uh, like, just in retrospect, after the fact, when I was thinking about the movie after, the whole thing with like the how she goes into the dorm and the bullies and all that. And then she uh -huh. ends up leaving to go to the apartment. I, I thought like if they were, you know, if, if you wanted like a little bit of a shorter running time, just to get to stuff quicker, you could have just had her go rent the building to begin with. Just I'm a new student in the area. I, I can't afford to live in the dorm. They're too expensive. I need a job and go rent a place. Cause bullies, they would still be around at school too. Or when you're out, in the club with the bullies could still do all that same stuff without needing to be in the dorm. It's just one way to cut it out. Cause really I'm like the bullies don't serve much of a purpose. Sure. I think you're backwards with the pricing. Dorms are way fucking cheaper than an apartment on any college campus. Dorms are more, are way cheaper. So it makes more sense for a girl who doesn't have any income of her own to move into the dorms. I mean, she probably might, she might've gotten a, a scholarship for all we know, you know, she could be on a free ride. So she would take the dorms of course, cause it's cheaper, but yeah, once she takes, once she realizes, once she spends one night in that apartment and realizes that her life is going to be hell living with uh, Jacosta, uh, that's when, yeah, it makes total sense that she would then go through the financial burden of having to, because then she had to get a job too. Cause don't forget she wasn't working when she first got there. Uh, then she got the apartment and was forced to get a job because she had to pay rent now. So I, I, I think and I'm going by my own college experience as well, because, again, dorms were way cheaper in the 90s than living off campus in an apartment. I mean, you had to get an apartment with like five other guys to make it, you know, um, financially viable, you know, as opposed to staying in the dorms, which didn't cost me anything. I spent one semester at the dorms and I was not on a full scholarship, but just the University of New Haven that I went to for one semester just had free dorms. So I took advantage of it. But yeah. Um, anyway, back to our film. Um, we see her move into this apartment. She she meets Miss Collins, an elderly English woman played by Diana Rigg. Uh, she is the landlady, the owner, manager of the building, if you will. She basically lays down the ground rules. No noise after 10. No boys in the apartment after uh, after sunset. Um, no visitors at all after sunset, I think, is specifically what she said. But um, you, for, you forgot the last rule. No visions of the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's another reason that I feel like any young girl in that room would have seen those visions, because Miss Collins wasn't even surprised when she finally uh, when she found out what was happening to Eloise in that apartment. She didn't even act surprised. She was just like, oh, you're seeing the ghosts, are you? 
You know, I mean, she was like very matter of fact about it. That's why I'm thinking. But isn't isn't that also kind of like a a little bit of a plot hole? Because if she if she know like if she because didn't she mention too that like oh other people have rented it through the years yeah. many people have come and gone yeah. and I'm like well if you know that people that stay there there's a good chance they might see these ghosts and these visions that it might reveal all this information why would you even rent that shit out to yeah people? but then you've also got. I'm saying you've also got her line that, you know, this is London. People have died in every room and every building. Yeah, exactly. Plus, she hasn't killed any. Or, ah, spoiler. Um, she hasn't actually killed anyone in over 50 years at this point. So she probably figures, eh, I, I've gotten away with it. There's no chance anybody's going to believe a girl saying that she's seeing ghosts in the room. Uh, ultimately, I just think that she was confident. On top of the fact that, you know, she probably had her eventual plan in the back of her head the whole time anyway you know if this girl becomes a problem i'm gonna have to do this which you know we'll get to here in a little bit but yeah basically on her on eloise's first night in the room she starts having these dreams and she's seeing herself as anya taylor joy's character who's called sandy uh sandy is basically um kind of a parallel of eloise she's in london for the first time uh, you know, she's by herself and she wants to become a singer as opposed to Eloise wanting to become a fashion designer. Sandy wants to become a singer. She auditions for, a, you know, a shawarmy club manager type guy. Um, who plays who plays that character? Because that's like a known actor, isn't it? The guy Matt, who plays Matt Smith. Matt Smith is his name. That's Matt Smith. Yeah. OK. So, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, we, we, we like I said, again, great cast. Um she, uh, Sandy, back in the 60s, mind you, I forgot to mention that when Eloise has these flashbacks, they are of Sandy in the 60s. Uh, like Mike said, they don't give us a specific year. I'm going to say somewhere in the mid to late 60s, just because of just all the lights and neon and everything. The early 60s London didn't look like that, to my knowledge. Like before the Beatles came over in 63, that's not what London looked like. But once the sexual revolution mm. occurred... Um, I, that's when London started becoming a lot more swinger, if you will. So I'm thinking mid to late sixties for the movie, but they don't tell us. So ultimately it's not a big deal. And like I said, she is seeing herself as Sandy. Like when she looks in the mirror, she's seeing a reflection of Sandy, not herself. And there's various points in the movie where Sandy will actually walk by a mirror and we'll see Eloise's reflection and not Sandy's. So, um, so like I said, Sandy is basically, you know, um, living through living Sandy's final days, if you will, or at least that's what she thinks, because at some at one point she's she continues having flashbacks. Say the long story short, Sandy doesn't even though she impresses the club owner, she does not get a job as a headline singer. She gets uh, a job as a chorus girl and they're not even really singing so much as just dancing in scantily uh, clothed outfits, uh, not covering very much. She's basically a stripper, if you will. Burlesque dancer, I guess, would be a better term than stripper. Yeah, she's not she, she basically she basically got roped in with the promise of fame and it's like, oh, OK, well, go be a backup dancer. Yeah. And through just manipulation from Jack, that being a burlesque dancer ends up turning into prostitution. She ends up being introduced to these very powerful and rich men who are able to then, you know, pay to have their way with her. Basically, 
this is the thing that I don't understand is that she takes all these men back to her apartment, which is also Eloise's apartment. And she's, you know, she's a prostitute. She's having sex with these men for money until we get the big reveal, which I won't say yet. But uh, she's just seeing how Sandy's dream is falling apart. And she feels like, oh, shit, is that what's going to happen to me? Is my dream going to fall apart? Am I going to end up just being a prostitute on the streets of London because I couldn't make it as a fashion designer? So she starts to worry. And then finally, we get a flashback that turns violent. This is where the horror starts. So basically, Eloise, on the first night that she actually is brave enough to bring a boy home with her, and, you know, breaking curfew, not curfew, but the, you know, the visitation limit and whatnot, her you know, eight, against her 8 p.m. Yeah, exactly. Her 8 p.m. <laughs> limit. Uh, she ends up sneaking the boy up there, but while they're getting hot and heavy in the bed, and I dare say Eloise is probably a virgin, so this is probably her first experience. I could be wrong, but like I said, uh, uh, Thomas and Mackenzie plays uh, Eloise as like a virginal character really well. It's not really implied that she's a virgin. This is just me personally thinking, because she doesn't look ultra comfortable when she's making out with her little guy friend. But anyway, in the middle of getting hot and heavy, she she sees another flashback of Jack and Sandy in her room, in that room. And then we see Jack start to get violent. Jack is on top of her, basically telling Sandy, you know, you're going to do what I tell you to do or I have no purpose for you. I have I have no use for you. We see Jack pull out a knife and then we see Jack start to mimic, not mimic, but actually stabbing. Uh, Sandy uh, and leaving Sandy a bloody mess on the bed with her eyes, you know, stuck open. So, of course, Eloise is going to believe that this guy, Jack, murdered Sandy in this room, in my bedroom. So now she takes it upon herself to try to find as much information as she can about this Sandy person. She's going to, you know, um, libraries and looking up old newspapers to see if she can find out anything about this girl getting murdered. Uh, unfortunately, she doesn't find anything about a, a, a lounge singer named Sandy getting murdered. And there's a reason for that, but we'll get to that. Um, but like I said, she she starts to um, she starts to suspect this old character who doesn't actually have a name in the movie. In the credits, he's actually called Silver Haired Gentleman. I think they call him Lindsay at the end. Lindsay, something like that, right? Yeah, because um, that's what they that's what they say when. When, when they take the, him in the ambulance, I think. Yeah, or yeah. when that when that occurs. But yeah, I think they say. Yeah. So um, she Lindsay. actually suspects, and and this character is played by uh, Terrence Stamp, beautifully played by Terrence Stamp, because this guy he's so swarmy. Basically, everyone introduces him as a guy who's been in the neighborhood forever, who used to be you know really big with the women, like like a womanizer type. Um, no one knew, or, or at least Eloise didn't know what his exact occupation was throughout his life. So she starts to put the pieces together and she starts to um, think that the silver haired gentleman is the man who killed Sandy. And we mm -hmm. finally get a confrontation at the pub that she's working at. She ends up getting a job at a pub and she ends up having a confrontation with them because she's the bartender of the downstairs bar. The bar has two levels. But few people hang out in the downstairs bar. So she's basically down there by herself with Terrence. 
And she actually, you know, God bless her, hikes up her skirt and just flat out accuses him of murdering Sandy. Uh, Yeah, accuses him of murdering Sandy. He doesn't like freak out or anything from the accusation. He just tells Eloise, no, Eloise, you're mistaken. Whatever happened to Sandy, she probably deserved. She was a wild kid and, you know, nobody could control her, blah, blah, blah. So he's basically making it seem more and more like he actually is the killer. Um, they end up, he ends up leaving the bar yeah. in, a, in, in a huff. And he, he goes out to the front. They have another altercation where they're yelling at each other. And then finally, the, the silver haired gentleman walks out into the road and gets hit by a car. And it, it's a bad accident. He's laid out multiple broken bones. He's bleeding. Uh, so then the owner of the bar that Eloise works at comes out and says, oh, my God, oh, my God, Lindsay got hit by a car. And and Eloise, I don't remember exactly what Eloise's line is. It was something along the lines of, you know, he's he's a criminal anyway. Who cares? Uh, I think she tries to call him Jack. Oh, like she, she tries to refer calls to him, him as Jack. Jack. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and everybody's and like, like that's, no, it's that's when the bar owner's like, no, it's Lindsay. Exactly. So, yeah. And then that's when the bar uh, owner actually tells her, no, Lindsay was a police officer for 30 years right here in Soho. He's a retired cop. There's not yeah. likely a way that he murdered someone. Now, obviously, as a, as a horror movie viewer, I'm like, oh, shit, he's definitely the killer if he used to be a cop, because it totally makes sense that a cop could get away with murder in the 60s. Hell, a cop could get away with murder now. We see it all the time. But again, story for another show. Um, yeah, he. And then it turns out he's a cop from earlier in the movie, like the younger yep. version of himself. We actually do see him. It turns out he was one of the Johns that Sandy took home. But, <laughs> which kind of makes you scratch your head once you actually get to the twist. But we'll get to that in a little bit here. She ends up going to the police, uh, to the police department to tell them that she is seeing these hallucinations, flashbacks, premonitions, whatever you want to call it. And she's trying to convince them that this girl, Sandy, was killed in the 60s in this apartment and that she thinks she knows who did it. Uh, once again, the police try to find the, a girl named Sandy who um, was murdered in Soho. And again, the police come back. We can't find anything. We're not sure what you're talking about. Blah, blah, blah. That evening, <laughs> she ends up going back home. I'm skipping a lot, too, folks. I mean, this is a two hour movie. I'm I'm sure Don is thanking me for skipping a lot so he doesn't have to relive all of it. But yeah, <laughs> um, after she, so she ends up going to the police, telling them this wild story about her premonitions and the things that she's seeing in that apartment. Um, the police obviously don't believe her. They kind of send her on her way. But one of the officers is somewhat sympathetic to what Eloise is going through. And she actually decides to follow up on her story. So the police officer, the female police officer, ends up going to the apartment building that Eloise lives at and interviewing Mrs. Collins. Now, this doesn't happen on screen. We find out that this happens later because that evening, Eloise decides, OK, I'm done with London. I'm absolutely done. I need to get out of here uh, before I end up dead myself. She ends up going into the apartment to tell Miss Collins that, yes, uh, I'm leaving right now. And uh, Miss Collins basically starts telling her a story. And she starts talking about, oh, yeah, I know about the, the things that you're seeing up there. I, I saw so much of it, too, myself. And then she's like, wait a minute. Uh, Eloise is like, wait a minute. You've been in that room? And she's like, oh, yeah, when I first moved here, I lived in that room. 
you know, back in the 60s. And then we look over her shoulder and we see a picture on the wall of Anya Taylor-Joy's Sandy. Yes, my friends. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Collins, played by Diana Rigg, is Sandy. She never got murdered. We are what happens is the complete opposite. Um, because of Sandy's just disgust with how her life turned out and her disgust with these men that are paying for sex, she's actually killing them all. She's taking them back to the apartment building, killing them, and then hiding their bodies in the walls. So literally all these men that she killed back in the 60s are all still in this building somewhere in the crawl space. Walls, walls. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, um, at that point, once uh, Diana Riggs' character, Mrs. Collins, makes that admission, uh, Eloise then looks down and sees a piece of mail that says Alexandra Collins. Alexandra was Sandy's real name. We don't hear it that often. Like, I think she only says it once to Jack when he asks what your real name is. And she says, oh, Alexandra. So, yes. Yeah. And then he's, he's like, no, Sandy's better. Yeah, exactly. He, he tries to he tries to give her a stage he tries to give her a stage name yep. or come up with a stage name, and that's when she's like, uh, she says her real name. And he's like, no, Sandy's better. Exactly. So yeah. So there it is. We get our reveal that it's actually Sandy. Uh, that that the landlady is Sandy, and that she basically. What she, I don't think she actually lays out what she did over the years, but obviously we can all assume that, you know, with the abundance of dead bodies in that building, she probably saved up money to buy the building or at the very least be, become the manager of the building so that she could hide her crimes a little bit easier. But, uh, yeah, um, at that moment, Sandy realizes that she's been drugged. Uh, the tea that was given to her by Mrs. Collins is starting to make her loopy, and she realizes, oh, shit, I've been drugged. And Mrs. Collins is like, well, look, I can't let you leave here knowing what you know now, And but, I, but I'm not going to kill you with a knife the way I did with all those men. I'm, I want to show you sympathy, so you'll just go to sleep, and then you know I'll, I'll do whatever to you in your sleep, smother her or whatever. Unfortunately, at the moment that she realizes that she's drugged, her her sort of kind of boyfriend shows up who was actually outside the building waiting for her the whole time. Uh, after a, a, a 15, 20 minutes, he decides to go in looking for her. That's when the landlady gets mad. Yeah, because she she said that to him. She said, if, if I'm not out here yep. in 15 minutes, come come in. Exactly. So, yeah, he comes in. At this point, Sandy, in her drunken stupor, knocks over, what, like a candle or a lamp or something in the lady's house. Um, or, or, yeah, it was a candle, and she dropped it into a record bin, in, into a bin of vinyl records. That ends up starting oh, a fire. Oh, not the records. Yeah, exactly. That's fucked up. Yeah, we got we to gotta preserve our vinyl. But, yeah, so the, 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 the fire starts in the record bin, but then, of course, spreads quickly. By the time Mrs. Collins realizes that the place is on fire, it's already a huge roaring fire just in her apartment. Um, at this point, Eloise is uh, running away from Mrs. Collins. Because once the fire starts, Mrs. Collins is like, well, forget about it. I wanted to just put you to sleep so that you could die peacefully. But now, fuck it. I'm going to take you out the way I take out everybody else. She grabs a butcher yeah. knife. Uh, yeah, and starts. I think she was pissed about the boyfriend, too. So Yeah, yeah, lying <laughs> about the boyfriend being outside. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. I mean, at this point, you're not going to murder someone because they brought a boy to the house. But it's just adding to the to the anger that Miss Collins is feeling. So 
She ends up chasing her up the stairs with a knife. Uh, she's able to get away. She's able to get into her apartment and lock the door behind her. And then that's when all the ghosts of these male characters that have been haunting her for, you know, the last act of the film. Now she can hear them saying, you know, help us or, you know, get her. Don't let her get away. Blah, blah, blah. This is a newer trope in horror that hasn't been used as much, but I still don't like it very much. When a ghost is haunting someone and and the person who's being haunted thinks that it's a malicious haunting, but then later on it turns out, no, the ghost was either trying to help you or help, uh, you know, themselves, you know, find peace. Uh, most recently in the Indonesian film, um, the, uh, the Queen of uh, Black Magic, there's three little girl spirits in that movie that our protagonist thinks are haunting her, but they're actually trying to steer her towards their bodies so that she could get their bodies and give them a proper burial, blah, blah, blah. We've seen it in a few movies. It's a newer trope, like I said, but it still bothers me because those girls, yeah. they come off as fucking terrifying. It's like, if, if you yeah. want this girl's help, why wouldn't you come about it uh, from a different angle? Why would you all just show up at the library when she's trying to study for her final and literally like a dozen male spirits are chasing her through this library? It's like, what the fuck? Well, I, I say what the well, fuck that, that's what I find out. That, <laughs> but that's why I was questioning earlier, like, I don't exactly understand the rhyme or reason to like how and where the ghosts show up when they do. Is it like once they start, they just follow her around Soho? Because I understand the room specifically with all the dead bodies up there, why the ghosts would appear there. But I wasn't sure like what was triggering it like in the library. And that's why I was like, well, is she is it like a sixth sense situation? But then there'd probably be other non-related dead people she saw. But yeah. um, (laughs) I mean, so, but yeah, and, mm-hmm. and that's the other thing because I was a little worried at that point when the ghost was basically like help kill her, and I was like, wait a minute, she, she, I, I understand why the ghost would want to do that, but like she shouldn't, even though even with the reveal of Miss Collins not necessarily being innocent of crimes, I don't think she would want to help the ghost because they're pretty much rapists so i'm like who here here's her dilemma like well who do i help her not help her i just get the fuck out of here yeah exactly it's funny too because i definitely started to feel some sympathy for sandy because obviously you know once she starts killing people you know the sympathy is gone but leading up to that you know her life was a shit show in london for the first however long she was there and literally yeah. to go from having dreams of being a lounge singer to being a prostitute in what the span of a few weeks, um, <laughs> that that's got to be fucking heartbreaking. So, like I said, I don't necessarily uh, condone murder, obviously, but in this case, it feels almost okay. Like I'm, I'm not saying okay remotely, but it, it just. You know, like I said, she's been through so much. Now she's got these strangers trying to stick their dick in her, uh, which, you know, I I have no idea what that does to a woman's psyche to constantly be hounded by men, you know, wanting to hand her money for sex, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, obviously she breaks down eventually and does what she does. So, yeah, I don't necessarily feel bad for those men because ultimately, you know, they were paying to have sex with a girl that looks 16. I mean, you know, let's be real. Anya Taylor-Joy doesn't look like a 30-year-old woman. 
she looks like a 16 year old teenager. And even in this movie, fully made up with nice, fashionable clothes and good makeup, she still looks like a 16 year old teenager. So she'll always be. uh, uh, Go ahead. She she even kind of acknowledges at the end, right? When she tries to slit her own throat, I think she acknowledges like, yeah, there was bad shit done to me, but what I did wasn't like I I wasn't exactly in the right in doing all that too because that's when she goes to kill herself and then, um, then you know she gets stopped from that yeah. but then ends up staying in the fire anyway. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, well, you know, the ghosts obviously want to get as much revenge as they possibly can, and ultimately suicide isn't very satisfying. They'd rather watch her burn, and they got their wish, so good for them. But yeah, like I said, this that whole trope of helpful ghosts being terrifying to their subject for the first half of the movie. It's just, no, there's got to be a way, an easier way to do this. You know, start out simple, maybe a little note, leave a note on her bedside, and then maybe some quiet appearances, not fucking screaming appearances where you show up two inches in front of her screaming at her incoherently. How, how is that helpful to anyone? So, yeah. Busting through floorboards. (laughs) Busting through the floorboards, exactly. (laughs) It could be a case of not being able to control themselves in the physical realm because as ghosts, they're not bound by... Yeah, they're not bound by they're not bound by the laws that we have as flesh and blood. They're as spirits. They have a different they have like a different sort of like alchemy to them to where they can't control themselves. A metaphysical difference. Yeah, that's valid. I, I can see that. I just don't see the point in terrifying the girl the first well, time you it, see her. <laughs> it could just always be, you know, they don't know that they're doing it. Because I've actually come across this numerous times in films. I sort of call it as a writing wrong kind of a mm-hmm. film. Because that's exactly what it is. They're writing the wrong of, you know, their death or something else. And sure. it's actually a pretty common genre trope. I've actually covered it on an article I wrote several years ago that detailed this specifically where it it was about the ghosts tormenting people to discover what happened and bring mm-hmm. peace to their, to, to their death, essentially. So it's not actually a common occurrence. It's actually started back in, I think the eighties or nineties was the first. Yeah. That's one why I, I called it a new trope. It, it's, it's not yeah. an old horror trope. It's very new, but it's yeah. still yeah, a six, six sense was kind of famous for it. Uh, Stir of yeah, Echoes kind of had Sense, that going Yeah. On. Stir of Echoes. Yeah. Those were the first ones that I, I think there was maybe, one or two, I'm, you know, I'm judging off of trying to remember the article I wrote like five, like three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was, it was, it started around the late eighties, early nineties, mm-hmm. where ghosts appeared and wanted people to dis, to discover what happened to them and before they died or how they died. So, yeah, it, it's just something I wanted to bring up, but. It, I've always just looked at it as being unable to control their physical selves because more than likely they're not, they're usually portrayed not how they were in life, but sure. their bodies are portrayed as how they died. So they're just unable to control how they look or whatever. It was really so. weird too. The The other thing that I question is uh, the reason that all the male ghosts in the movie, the reason that their faces are distorted is because Sandy when they were still alive, she would do that. She didn't want to look at them as actual human beings. So she actually, that effect on their face, she did to in her mind while they were still alive. So why is Eloise seeing that? That That's kind of a 
weird question that came up on my drive home. Um, I, it's it's not it's a nitpick, but it's a minor one. You know, it's not like I'm going to fault the movie that much, but it, it is true. Like, it doesn't make sense that Eloise is seeing these ghosts exactly as Sandy saw them back in the 60s. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, all, all I could think of in that case is like somehow they're. I don't know, like it's a manifestation of like. They wouldn't even know yeah, if Sandy exactly. looked at them like that. This this was all in Sandy's head. She distorted their face so that she didn't have to look at them as being actual people. Um, yeah. So like I said, they wouldn't even like know. the out of body thing to exactly. act like she yeah. wasn't there when all well, this happened. Like I said, minor nitpick, but you know, ultimately it's still something to think about because I don't I don't want to come off like this movie is perfect. This movie, you know, there are some minor storytelling issues in here. But they are still very minor, and the amount of things that the movie does right makes up for all of that. So it, it you know, minor, minor, minor nitpick. But yeah, uh, basically, uh, the the film ends with Miss Collins just sitting in the burning bedroom, kind of accepting her fate. That even though even though Eloise actually tries to save her, even even after Miss Collins tries to murder her, tries to drug her. Even after all of that, she still, once she realizes that that actually is Sandy, she actually has a level of sympathy that's very admirable. But again, Eloise being an innocent country girl, it makes sense. So, um, but yeah, like I said, she tried to save Sandy, but she, you know, as the old Sandy, she basically says, no, I, 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 this is my fate. I deserve this. Because ultimately, I I also think that Sandy realizes that once that burning bull uh, burns down, uh, guess what they're going to find in the, in the, in the walls, <laughs> lots of bones. Yeah. I mean, bones yep. do burn, but teeth don't. So at the very least they're going to find teeth, but I would imagine the, the fire department in the sixties in that part of London was still somewhat comparable. So I figured they would get that fire put out in time enough to be able to find actual bodies in there. And ultimately I think Miss Collins understood that she's like, well, if I leave with you, I'm just going to jail for the rest of my life. And who the fuck wants that? So I'm just going to sit right here. And then we get uh, kind of an epitaph to the film. We see uh, the students uh, um, presenting their final projects at a fashion show. Uh, Eloise's designs, which are all based on Sandy's, uh, the, the way that Sandy dressed back in the 60s, uh, ends up being like, you know, the 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 star of the show if you will uh, everybody's raving about her designs uh she's like the star pupil now of the class and that's when we see grandma there with her boyfriend her boyfriend did survive the fire and grandma comes back and joins her and sees that you know her granddaughter is a big success you know we have the inevitable um conversation between grandma and Eloise saying, I knew you would do it. I knew you could do it. Your mother is so proud of you. I guarantee she's proud of you. Then we see Eloise look into the mirror and see her mother one last time and kind of acknowledge that, yeah, I I know my mom is proud of me. But then right before the movie ends, she looks into the mirror one more time. And this time she sees young Sandy and Mm. you see young Sandy kind of mouth to her. Thank you. And, you know, uh, Eloise kind of acknowledges Sandy in the mirror by doing uh, a little move that Sandy used to do by, you know, kind of touching the mirror when she was when she was satisfied with the way she looked or whatever. She'd do this thing where she'd tap the mirror. Um, Eloise does that. And Sandy smiles. And that's the end of our film. Last night in Soho. Like I said, folks, I skipped a lot. And I still think this movie 
needs to be watched. If you're still listening to this show and you have not seen the movie, I think I skipped enough scenes that it would be worth you seeing. Obviously, Don wouldn't agree. Um, it is a two-hour <laughs> film. Be warned. You're going to be in that theater for two and a half hours with trailers. But uh, ultimately, for me, I say it was a really good experience. I got to see it in a Dolby theater, so it made the score that much more present. And, uh, yeah, had a great time. So, yeah. Last Night in Soho gets my highest recommendation. See it in the theater if you can. Yes. I very much agree. Um, even though the horror takes a while to get to, I was yeah. uh, very into the story leading up to it. So I liked everything I was seeing. I think because, uh, you know, I really think like the 60s stuff carried the first what hour where we yeah. were waiting for like the horror to come out. I was just so... Like, I, I kind of had that look on my face. Like, anytime we would jump back out of the 60s into present time, I'm like, go back to sleep so we can get more 60s <laughs> stuff. Because I just thought it was really well done. And it's something we just don't get to see a lot um, in American right. cinema. So, and, yeah, obviously, if, I, if, if, like, it's such a huge interest of mine, I can go find, like, you know, documentary archive footage. But just to see it presented on screen and within the, you know, the context of the story, I just, I, I thought it was cool and really well done. Yep. It did it better than Austin Powers. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, as we were going through spoilers in my head, I was like, you know, I think the one other movie series that would have shown me this is Austin Powers. Exactly. Yeah. But, but Austin, I mean, Powers, Austin Powers was like the Goofy's, like, exaggerated version. Oh, by far. I mean, I don't think anybody takes that too incredibly seriously. I mean, even though some of it does come out of reality, but very little of it does. So, yeah. But um, for me, Mike, you were saying that it was the 60s stuff that was keeping you uh, kind of interested for that first hour. For me, it was the performances. Um, Thomas and Mackenzie as Eloise and Anya Taylor-Joy as Sandy were damn near perfect casting for me. Anya Taylor-Joy exudes that sexy young British girl from the 60s. I mean, yeah, she's obviously a, a modern beauty. We, we know her from uh, many films, but... And is she even British? She, uh, no, no. Um, I believe it or not, I think she's Spanish. Yeah, she's. I, I she's don't remember Spain. the exact country of origin, Spain. but she's. Yeah, because yeah. Spanish, she said, was all she spoke for the first eight years of her life, and then exactly. I think they moved to America. So, but she, yeah, she pulled it off. She had. She definitely has that look. I mean, she, to me, she has like a Bond girl look. She's a little young for that, but just her look, she looks like she could be like a 60s or early 70s Bond girl with the way she was made up. And um, that's okay. probably what they were going for, because that's what you think of, you know. Uh, she was, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy was born in Miami. Uh, she was the youngest of six children. Um, very soon after her birth, uh, it looks like her parents moved back to Barcelona, Oh, oh, uh, equal time between Argentina, Spain, and England, because her father was Argentinian and her mother was Spanish. Uh, she basically lived equally between the three places. So that's why she made the comment about, you know, until I was eight, I only spoke Spanish. Both her parents mm -hmm. were Spanish-speaking, and she spent, you know, part of her time going back and forth. It doesn't really say why they moved around so much. I'm not sure if dad was maybe military or something, but... Yeah, they they pretty much lived between those three countries. So, yeah. So I'm going to say she's Spanish just because it makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, whatever her the mix she is, it's fantastic. So. No, it really is. And, <laughs> and it gave her good acting skills too, yeah. No, that's what I mean. It, it wasn't yeah. just her look, it was her attitude, you know. She was a she was a pretty talented girl who knew she was pretty and talented, but she never really comes off like a bitch because the people around her are even worse. The club owner, the the club, the, the people who went to the club, all the Johns that she took home, they were all so much worse that you never really look at Anya as like an entitled, you know, shitty little girl. But uh, she, uh, yeah, she nails this role. I, I mean, as much as I love The Witch, and I say that The Witch is my favorite movie of the 2010s of the entire decade, I think her performance here is actually a little bit better. Like she just the way that she encompasses the role, the you know, not just verbally, but physically and emotionally. Uh, it's just a great performance by Anya. But like I said, overall, this cast is great. We we have I mean, between Matt Smith and Terrence Stamp and Diana Rigg, this is a great movie. And then Thomas and McKenzie, who maybe doesn't have as big a name. Uh, like I said, I just found her absolutely charming, adorable. I, I I wanted to see her succeed. Ultimately, I did not want her to see. I didn't want to see her leave London and go back with her tail between her legs, whatever, you know, uh, I'm I'm it, it's nice when you get a character that you can get behind and you want to see him succeed. And then when they do succeed, you get to leave the theater happy. So ultimately, yeah, we do get a happy ending. And I always say I hate happy endings in horror films, but. You know, since this one's only kind of horror, I can accept the happy ending. So I'm very okay with it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, I think that's that's going to do it for last night in Soho. Um, yeah. Uh, so let's go figure out where we can be heard and what else we got. So Venom, what do you have on tap? All right. Well, I can finally, after about a month of uh, predicting it or announcing it, I can finally say that In the Mic of Madness is officially back. Uh, We recorded our latest episode um, two nights ago. It is currently available as you listen to this. It is our tribute to 1981. What we basically did was came up with 15 categories like you know, best favorite final girl, favorite slasher, you know, favorite drug scene, things like that. You know, we tried to stick some wacky car- um, uh, categories in there as well with with the obvious ones like favorite slasher, favorite supernatural, things like that. Uh, it ended up being a really quick and fun episode. Becca and I actually matched on a lot of it. Uh, we're both Friday the 13th um, stands. So, yeah, it, it's kind of obvious that <laughs> three guesses what uh best uh death scene during sex is in 1981 <laughs> we we can only really find one so it's very obvious what i was that gonna was. say how many uh partic- how many qualifi- qualifying uh participants were in that that's what i mean because i i watched 21 1981 movies in october and that was one of the categories I was stuck on because there's the obvious one, you know, the Bay of Blood ripoff kill and Friday the 13th part two. But then I was like, I can't think of any others. And I, I, I would find like people who were like making out. Um, if you remember the cold open of My Bloody Valentine, where the girl is topless, they're about to have sex, but he kills her. I didn't count that because, you know, the category is death during sex. And I take that as intercourse. So, yeah. But anyway, point is, fun episode. Check it out on Dark Discussions. It is available as we speak. Um, It's a quick listen. It's like maybe a little over an hour. So it's it's a good one. 
Um, it's Not Horror Okay makes its triumphant return after taking October off. We are back next week with a new episode. Um, oh, I, I believe we're doing Dragon Slayer, also from 1981, so go figure. Um, really cool movie. I'm not sure how it's going to fit for our format because, you know, we're a bunch of drunk, stoned idiots just kind of having fun and watching these movies. But uh, if I remember correctly, Dragon Slayer is a pretty heavy movie, like not a lot of comedy um, not a lot of like wacky special effects, just kind of played, you know, very uh, kind of grounded in reality. So that'll be a fun one. We'll see. Let's see. On the main show, No More Room in Hell, episode 39 is now available where we look at my picks, which were uh, a couple of under discussed witch movies. We look at 1972's The Season of the Witch by George A. Romero. And we look at 2013's Witching and Bitching from Alex de la Iglesias, the director of uh, The Last Circus and uh, Day of the Beast. Um, and you guys know how much I love Spanish horror. So I, I'm sure you can kind of figure out what I, <laughs> what my general thoughts on that film were. But yeah, that's episode 39 of the main show. It's a quick one since we recorded on Devil's Night. Uh, no burning question, very little news. Uh, it, it's probably one of our quickest episodes we've ever done. So yeah, have fun with it. I was drunk for half the episode. So, you know, take that into account as well. Uh, like I said, it was Devil's Night and I celebrate <laughs> I celebrate my holiday regardless of what I'm doing. If it was a work night, I probably still would have been drinking. So whatever. But uh, yeah, that's uh, episode 39 of No More Room in Hell. Creature Comforts Episode 2, uh, still the latest episode there. We looked at 1941's The Wolfman. Episode 3 will be coming closer to Thanksgiving, and we'll be looking at 1954's Them, uh, the giant radioactive ant movie. And we'll also have Bo Ransdell from the Legion Podcast Network as our first guest on that show. So look out for that in November um underwater kaiju from outer space we've been talking about that episode uh for the last month as it turns out the episode actually was not released um our host decided that um since it was october and there was going to be a glut of podcasts discussing horror he decided to postpone the release of that episode until this month uh, I'm not sure if it's out as we speak, but hopefully sooner than later, it will be available. That is our review of uh, Gamera versus Baragon and our, our continued retrospective of the original Ultraman series. And I think that's it for me. I'm taking a break from guest spots because I did what, like 13 guest spots in October and it just drained me. Um, I do this every October. I say I'm not going to overbook myself, but then I do it because I fucking love talking about these movies and you guys know that. So uh, I'm, I'm sure October 2022, I'll be saying the same thing. Don't do too many guest spots. And guess what? I'll probably do the same thing again anyway. So whatever. I love Halloween. I love October. I love horror and I love talking about it. So yeah, that's it from me, Mike. Okay, uh, Don, what do you got? Um, right, so uh, Venom already hit uh, Creature Comforts and Underwater Kaiju. Uh, the only other thing for me, uh, especially with the uh, proximity to recording this with the last episode, is uh, Phantom Galaxy, my uh, guest spot, doing the uh, Indonesian horror retrospective with them. Um, I did have a, 
I did have a, a recording with Bo for uh, the Dark Parade. Uh, we discussed the Night of the Demons remake, which was a ton of fun. Uh, that should be out probably closer to Thanksgiving as well. Just because I remember uh, at the time we're recording this episode now, um, the first one was just released. So, uh, you know, you figure he's still got to release two and three before he gets to me. So uh, I'm figuring that'll probably be um, towards the end of the month um, or somewhere in thereabouts. Um, and then, uh, as I mentioned last time, um, I, I do have another guest spot that I have coming up, but uh, we're still working things out. Just like I said, um, closeness to the uh, last recording date hasn't given me much time for uh, any other updates. So uh, that's all for me. Okay. And as far as I go, Venom's pretty much mentioned it already. Nothing to add. October... Wow, it was packed, but uh, November <laughs> will probably be a more just normal schedule. Still get the regular stuff out, but uh, we'll see. We're kind of now like fully in the holiday season, so you know, schedule stuff around that just depending on who does what with their family and needs certain weekends free. But other than that, uh, last two months looking to fill the gaps in some 2021 releases. And uh, early, what, early January, probably the top 10 show. Can't believe that's already coming up. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, But, yeah, um, I think next week is it, it's a week off of the theater because the, I don't know if we're doing Ghostbusters, but if we are, that's the week Uh, after, right? I doubt that. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, The only thing that I can see um dropping is shutter dropped a new vampire movie last night called dead and beautiful i know nothing about it i'm just looking at upcoming releases and uh, yeah it's, it, yeah it's a it's an asian vampire film i know that I, I think it's i think it's either chinese or thai i don't remember oh then i'm gonna say it's a safe bet we're gonna look at that yeah <laughs> yeah looks that sounds interesting um yeah, yeah, Asians know how to do their vampires. Go back to the Bloodthirsty trilogy and, and check out what they can do with that genre. It's spectacular. <laughs> or Thirst, uh, South Korean. Oh, Thirst. Oh, what a great yeah, I movie. I love Thirst. That's a heartbreaking movie, too, though. But yeah. an awesome mm-hmm. movie, yeah. Yeah. yeah the um, movie goes through so many different things. It's just great. Yep. Yeah. So I'm saying, I, I, I think I, it's either Chinese or Thai. I don't remember. Um, I know that the site is the site that I write for, Asian Movie Pulse. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to be doing an interview with a director, but because of the time zones, I'm not involved with it. So I don't know much, but I, I, I know we're covering it at some point. So I, I think it's either Chinese or Thai. I don't know for sure. All right. Well, with that said, we're going to get the hell out of here and enjoy the rest of our Friday night going into the weekend. So thank you, everybody, for listening. We should be back next week with a new episode. So with that, let's say bye, listeners. Later. Adios, my friend. Peace. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown when you've got worries all the